What's up, guys? Thanks for coming to our Kaafa and Miss You podcast. Here, you will find resources to help you grow in real devotion, real community, and real responsibility. So you can learn to love Jesus, not just for a season, but for a lifetime. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you enjoy. All right. So like I was saying, over and over this week, when I was thinking about tonight and last week, actually, um, the Lord would only give me one word. I couldn't get away from it. Um, it just like I, I was thinking to myself, there's got to be you know, something else, a little more elaboration here. And it was always this one word, and it's not usually one word, there's like a clear little train of thought to go down, but it was just this word, freedom. And we talked about it once this semester, but it really does feel like a deep necessity for everyone in the room, no matter what stage of life you are in with the Lord, new, years, decades, it's the same deep and glorious truth. So... And it makes sense because repetition is the price of knowledge. So maybe it's something he wants us to know really well. So I believe I have one of the best moms I could ever ask for. We argue about the dumbest things. She wears the brightest colors she can find. She is louder than your average person. But she is teachable. She is generous. She is a growing woman of God. And she is a great mom. And this is the only chance she's going to have to hear me say that. But she doesn't listen to my sermons, so... Guess she doesn't get. No, I'm just kidding. She, I'll tell her. I'll tell her. But no, it is true. She doesn't listen. She's like, I'm busy. I'm busy. Oh, well, I, if you're not tweeting it tomorrow, I'm busy tomorrow. I, it's only 25 minutes. That's I'm busy for that long. Exactly. Listen to it at seven. I'm busy right then for 25 minutes. But I work how I work and as hard as I work because of her. I watched her work for the last 38 years of her life, and she did it so. Well, she worked for the Corrections Department of New Mexico, the Department of Health, then retired, and then she worked for Los Alamos National Labs. She is amazing. And about six months ago, she officially retired from all work. For the first time in three decades, her days belonged solely to her. She finally gets to sleep in. She works out at any time of the day she wants instead of at 4.30 in the morning before she catches the bus to work. She does her Bible studies at any time of the day she wants. She serves in church any opportunity there is. She reads books on godly parenting that I give her because she knows that she's the next biggest influence in my kid's life besides me and my gorgeous wife. She plays disc golf when I'm around at least and spends time with her friends trying to disciple them. She does so, so much now. But she keeps finding in herself this desire to work again because she sees the house she's going to buy here and says there's things I want to do to it that they're not doing. And those projects cost money. And it would be really comforting to make a little more right now, pay those off, and then not work again. A little extra money would help. And it just wouldn't sit well with me every time she would say it. And the reason we argue is we speak our mind to each other all the time, even when we... Maybe we shouldn't, but... And so I told her, I said, Mom... Mom, you're free. Why would you want to put yourself under someone's labor again? Your days belong to you now. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. Anything that you're not desiring to do or anything that you know is like other than things you know you should do. Why would you make yourself obligated to someone else's schedule and how they say your day should go again? You're free after 30 years, probably even longer because of school, like, you are free to do anything. 
And so in the book of Galatians, Paul addresses a problem in the church that caused ripples of other problems. He founded these churches in Galatia, but then some teachers came in after him and they taught something different. So Paul taught them that you trust Jesus, you're saved, and then you obey. These teachers came in and taught, you trust Jesus, you obey, and then you're saved. Paul has fought hard to help them realize that they are free from the obligation of the law. But they keep living like the law, these rules they have are something they must do. It's life or death if I don't. They're making themselves obligated to fulfill it when for the first time since before the cross, they are free. D.L. Moody quoted an ex-slave after the American Civil War, and he said this, being a former slave, she was confused about her status and said this, she asked, now is I free or is I not? When I go to my old master, he says, I ain't free. When I go to my own people, they say, I is. I don't know whether I'm free or not. Some people told me Abraham Lincoln signed a proclamation, but my master says he didn't, and that he didn't have any right to. Many Christians often get confused on the same exact point. Jesus Christ has given an emancipation proclamation, but their old master tells them that they are still slaves to a legal relationship with God. Tonight, I'm speaking primarily to the Christians in the room. If you are not, then my hope is that tonight will be a window for you to look through to see what life and freedom in God's kingdom should look like. But that's the question we're asking. Are we free or not? That's the question Paul is directly dealing with. He says it was for freedom in Galatians 3, I believe, or Galatians 5. It was for freedom that Christ freed you. Why go back and make yourself a slave? So for the Christian, the question is the same. Have you gone back to some form of slavery where something, you're, you're obligating yourself to do something, be someone, say some way, act some way, present yourself some way? Does that make sense? Yeah. That you don't need to do. Have you begun to rely on something else for your worth and your value? Why do I say worth and value? Because often... You can tell what, people's are, what people are slaves to by where they find their value. What makes us feel worth something? What makes us feel alive? You see what I'm saying? So like it says, Galatians chapter 5, Paul said, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Isn't that interesting? He has to say it twice. He's really trying to emphasize something. It's for freedom that he sets you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again. Burden is a strong word. Why would you burden yourself? Mom, why would you do this again? Can't you feel the, the freedom, the lack of burden, you see? By a yoke of slavery. So tonight, we're going to talk about three ways that people usually find their value. Outward value, inward value, and upward value. <clears throat> Jesus, we need you. Help us to hear what you're saying to us. Lord, I know that you're speaking, I know that you're here, and I know that ears haven't heard your voice yet. I pray that you would help us to hear you, that hearts would sense you speaking, Holy Spirit, and that they would be open to hear you, that their hearts would be melted before your beauty, your majesty, your power, and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So growing up, my life revolved around one dream, and that was to play Division I baseball. So from age 5 to 22, every decision I made was conditioned on its either help 
or hindrance to this one goal, peak performance. It also meant that success in this goal or failure also made me either feel valuable or valueless. I couldn't enjoy this sport I loved unless I was doing it well because so much was riding on it. But ironically, every time I was on the cusp of a major failure in baseball, because that was my idol, that was where I found worse. When I played well, I was good, I was worth something. When I didn't, I wanted to go hide until I could come back out and reprove myself again. Does that make sense? But every time I was on the cusp of a major failure, I ironically had started one of my, my major two dating relationships before my marriage. So when I didn't get a scholarship right out of high school, I had a two-year relationship to then focus on. So I felt valueless because I didn't get a scholarship that I wanted. So I just felt valuable because my relationship, someone loved me and adored me. <coughs> when I was playing at MSU and I injured my shoulder, I was about to and never play again, I was in the middle of a year and a half relationship. So when the dream finally died, in the middle of its being lived out, I was valueless, but I was in a relationship, so I still had some way to feel valuable. You see what I'm saying? I always had something to look to for my value. There was a novelist who said he had based his life on being a good writer, which made it hard for him to enjoy. Does that make sense? It's hard to enjoy something where all of who you are rides on you doing it well. But, he said, I don't, I don't see writing that way anymore. And this is his solution, it's a happy solution for him. Because I fell in love with someone, and this is such an overpowering diversion. Do you hear that? Sounds like a sweet ending for some. But this is the problem today. Society tells you that you are valuable if you say you are. You can make your own value, which is true and not true. Yes, you can choose whatever it is you want to be or you want to do, but no, ultimately, it is the acceptance and applause of someone else that gives you value. You must be brilliant. Why? Why do, why do we have the desire to be brilliant so brilliant people will approve of us? Why must we be beautiful so that someone can tell me and think that I'm beautiful? Why must you feel like you have to have your life all together so that others will approve of how together my life is? Our marriage hardships, they must remain confidential. No one can know that we have problems. Why? So others will look up to me. So others will think I can lead them well. You see what I'm saying? You must be accomplished so that others will approve of your accomplishments. And others must think so, or it doesn't feel the same. You cannot approve of yourself. Someone else must do it. It's definitely weird if someone said, you know, no one in the world thinks I'm a good singer, but I think I'm a good singer. Because of that, I'm winning American Idol. You see what I'm saying? It's really illogical. We won't go there. But like this writer, maybe you found love. You don't really need approval all that much anymore for your successes, uh, your career choices, your having your life together. Instead, you look outward to someone else's love for you to find worth still. You see what I'm saying? You see this trend? Their love and devotion to you gives you worth that makes you feel important. But because so much is riding on that person's love and affection for you, you over-depend on them. And this over-dependence enslaves us to them or them to us. Who am I without them? Can I be happy without them? Even godly people should be asking themselves that question. Could I be happy if my loved one died? Who am I without the one I have? You see what I'm saying? Who, am I anybody anymore? So what do I mean? 
How can someone stay in a relationship when they're poorly treated? Usually they lie to themselves. Their partner is so low and degrading, but you feel like you need them. You can't lose them, so you lie to yourself, saying that you, you, you deserve this. I, I believe I deserve to be treated like this. I'm just as low and degrading as them, so really, this is how we should be treating each other. Does it make sense? You can't just lose the relationship, so it enslaves you. The thought of losing it ends everything. You're nobody without them. You have no value or sense of worth or love without them. Whether it's a form of achievement or a love relationship, it's still looking outward to feel worth something. And it makes us a slave. We are obligated to get praise from it, to get love from it. You see? Like a job. If I don't work, I don't get paid. If I don't get praise for my strengths or love from my partner, I don't have any worth. Many true Christians fall quickly and easily and unknowingly into this. So how do you know if that's you? If you're the success one, usually you can't bear the thought of failure. You can't bear relationship problems or the thought of separating from someone. Because if you get your value from the love of another person, you will not be able to give them criticism because the possibility of their anger is crushing to you. I don't want them to be angry at me. They're everything to me. You can no longer be bold enough to do or say what is godly. Why? Because if you lose money, I can't do or say that. If it's going to cause me to lose my relationship, I wouldn't dare do or say that. If it makes my family angry at me, I will absolutely just be clamped back into conformity like I was before. Like Paul said, has someone come after and taught you something different? If you look outwards for your value, then you are enslaved to the thing that gives it to you. But Paul says, Christ freed you for freedom. Why rely on something else again? Why put a yoke on? Why, why work for that again? You're free. Why bind yourself to the thoughts of someone else and their approval of you? You have all that you could need in the Father's thoughts and in His home. So looking outward just simply gives up our freedom. But what does it look like to look inward for your worth? People who are not free, like Paul is saying, here, here comes some of the processing thoughts. <clears throat> People who look inward for value, at least in Christian circles, will say things like, you know what, I'm the worst. I am the worst, and I must be better. I must fight to be better. Or they say, you know, I'm not that bad, and I should be loved. Like, I am worthy of love. I, I'm lovable. There was a story I heard about a young high school boy who punched a kid in the hallway. Immediately, the teacher runs over, and one says, that's it, you're done, you're out of the school, and I'll see you to it, you're going to be expelled. And the boy said, would you please look at this, look at, look at his pocket, look at, the, look at the kid's pocket. They look down, and there's a gun in his pocket, and his hand's on the gun. So the boy said, yes, I did punch him, but that kid was about to shoot somebody. Now, he justified his behavior extremely well. He didn't change what he did because he can't. It happened. It's on the record. He hit the kid. He didn't change the behavior that happened. He changed the view of that behavior. To justify something is not to change what happened or to somehow outwork what happened to make it go away. It's to change how it's treated and how it's viewed. Does it make sense? And the essence of being a Christian is this word, justified. You are a Christian when you have been justified. 
Most people will say you're a Christian when you really repent, when you really promise to change, and when you really promise to be good. And those things are involved, but they are not the essence of it. Being a Christian isn't about becoming good. Becoming good and holier and godlier is a result of becoming a Christian, but it is not the essence of it. Your sins can no longer condemn you. Condemn you. you are accepted and seen as righteous in God's sight. God sees the Christian like he looks when he sees Jesus. Because yes, man has sinned, but God is the one who suffered for it. Other worldviews, other philosophies, anywhere else outside of Christianity will tell you that you're a sinner trying to be righteous, or that you're righteous and you used to be a sinner. Those are the two ways they'll say it. The world either says you're a failure or you are honored. But Paul in chapter 2 of Galatians is in essence saying a Christian is an honored failure. Does it make sense? Every other worldview or philosophy says you're either honored or you're a failure. Christianity, God says you are an honored failure. A righteous sinner. Romans 4 says to those, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the godly, their faith, their trust is credited as righteousness. To the one who, who stops trying, it is credited to them as righteousness. Luther said, a Christian is at the same time just and a sinner. Because of that, you are free. And allow me to explain that. There are two errors a Christian can fall into, and it strips you of this freedom. On one side is the person who says, I'm basically a sinner trying to become righteous, which would be legalism. On the other side is the one who says, I'm acceptable and lovable, and God loves us and accepts us as we are. That's the lovest, so the legalist and the lovest, or the worldly, worldly wise man, as John Bunyan would say. But these both miss the gospel's freedom. A hymn writer said, to see the law by love fulfilled. To see that there was a law, and that love, through Jesus, fulfilled it, turns a, a slave into a child, and it turns duty into choice. Does that make sense? To see the law fulfilled by love turns a servant into a child and it turns duty into choice. We can try to follow all the rules we want, but rules will not go and reach as far as the gospel does. Paul says in other areas, walk in line with the gospel. Trying to follow every rule you can think of is not the same as following in line with the gospel. You don't say to someone for being racist, you're being racist, that's against the law of God. You say... That is not walking in line with the gospel. Does it make sense? Yeah. You don't say to someone, you're doing and being this and that's wrong for this reason. You say, you're doing that and that is not in line. You said you wanted to walk in line. Walk in line with the gospel. Do you see the difference? Yeah. <clears throat> the gospel says that you're a moral failure and absolutely loved. Thank you. Now, you can see the people that are not free from these two mindsets. Because most of the time, one of them is afraid to share their failures. They'll say things like, I can't let anyone see or know how much I don't have it together. I can't really be honest at all times, everywhere. Too much is riding on what people think of me. Too much is riding on the influence I carry. And if they know I struggle with that, it's over. I'm over, I have nothing. They can't really know me, I can't really be honest with you. 
I have to overthink every move, every word, every thought. I've got to be careful and walk on eggshells because I'm not free. You enslave yourself when you lean one way or the other. You say things like, I'm accepted, but you forget that you are a sinner. Or you say, oh, oh, I'm a sinner, but you forget that you're accepted. You see, it's in the reality and remembering of both where is this glorious, supernaturally freeing freedom. Does it make sense? Yeah. At the moment you can feel lowest, the thought comes to mind, I am accepted by the most glorious being in all of the world. Yeah. Yeah. At the moment when you feel like you have it all together, and man, I really am somebody, you have to remember, I really am terrible. It, I'm so terrible, God had to die for me. That's how bad I am. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. It's in the remembrance of both. So why do you keep going back? If you hate yourself when you fail, it's because you think only of God's holiness and forget all about His grace and love. If you suffer in life and you hate God for it, you hate God for all the evil around you, it's because you think of only the love of God but not His holiness. So, what Paul says still rings true. Christ has freed you for freedom. So why go back to looking inside yourself for your approval? Why go back and say, you know what, I am somebody. I am worth loving. Or you know what, like, I am that bad. I've got to work hard to be better. I've got to work hard. I've got to fight for it. I've got to fight for it. He says, stand firm in what I showed you. I've come to this place in my life where the things I enjoy have to have a decent mortality rate. I do have three kids. And I would like to watch them grow up and raise them to love and know and experience Jesus for the first time. I can't wait to hear when they tell me what they, they feel like the Lord is showing them and telling them. But this means helicopter rides for me are off limits. It means skydiving will never be worth the risk for me. When I go surfing, I will absolutely stay near others so the sharks have other options other than me. <laughs> or snowboarding, for example. I am far safer now than I was then. No, that's not me. For example, one time, I wanted to start quickly weaving through the trees, and no one's watching me. For some reason, I just get elated, and I'm like, wow, I'm so cool. Look at myself. And so I just start crushing it. I'm going through these trees, but as I was about to go through this four-foot gap, my board clipped a tiny root that was sticking out of the snow. It turned me sideways, so instead of like this going through a four-foot gap, I turned parallel to them, and I slid back first into a tree, and I was going really hard. Thankfully, my head snapped to the side of the tree, not into it, because I wasn't wearing a helmet. So instantly, all of my momentum, which I would guess had to have been anywhere from 8 to 17 miles an hour, that's a long range there, but all of it instantly, all of it instantly was stopped. No matter how hard I hit this tree, it wasn't going to move. In the same way, this is what Paul says when he says, stand firm in the immovable worth that you've seen. God offers us a sense of worth that is immovable, no matter what hits it. Tim Keller says, there has to be somebody that we adore who adores us. Somebody that we cannot help but praise that loves us and praises us. Paul is saying, for these last three chapters of Galatians, in two, three, or four, three, four, and five, Christ freed you. Why are you going back? Mm 
Paul, in a letter to another church, talks about the type of freedom he's referring to. In this letter to the Corinthian church, he says, I care little if I am judged by you, by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. He is saying, I don't care what organized structure thinks of me and my success. I don't look outward to feel important. He says, I also don't look to my own evaluation of myself and what I think about myself and how successful I think I am, how good I'm doing. I don't look inward to see how well I'm doing, to see if I'm successful or worth anything. He looks somewhere else for judgment because he has to look somewhere ultimately. In short, he says, I don't care what anyone else thinks. I don't even care what I think. All I care about is what the Lord thinks. Now, if we don't know what Scripture says, we don't know what He thinks. So if you don't know, you should definitely read your Bible. Mm. But Paul cares only what God thinks. So he still cares about what someone thinks. So I'll clarify that for a second. Some of you might have heard, Oh, yeah, I don't care about what anyone thinks. I'm just going to be the greatest, pompous idiot the world has ever seen. I don't care. That is not what I'm referring to. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That was not permission to say, oh yeah, I don't care about anybody's thoughts. Because Paul still cares, but he cares about the living God's thoughts. Mm. And his thoughts are truer, realer, deeper, and more honest than any of ours could. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So don't hear me wrongly and say I'm giving you permission to be dumb. Or not. But why is, why is the Lord's judgment more free? Because everywhere else, you have to earn your worth. You have to achieve it. You have to work hard to get it. You have to be a self-made person. You have to be loved by somebody. You have to have family approval. You must live up to whatever identity you choose. But in God's kingdom, worth is given, not earned. And for any kind of maybe athlete or uh, super successful academic person, that is a hard concept to understand because you don't start in sports unless you earn it. Does it make sense? Yeah. So it's a really weirdly hard and great thought to give up. Like, I don't have to earn that. I didn't when I came to the kingdom. I don't have to earn it now. We see what we are, the filth we live in, and we say at one point, we say maybe, maybe, just maybe, God will take me in. We ask Him, and right then and there, He accepts where we are. He takes us in, He adopts us, and He makes His home in us. He does it not because of what we've done, we've done something special to make Him want to do it, but because of what He did on the cross. On the cross, Jesus was treated like we deserve to be treated, if we were honest, so that when we trust Him, we're treated like He deserves to be treated. As a Christian, it is literally true then that the person we adore most in the universe adores us. Wow. Now, you choose to serve and live like Him because of that. Not to convince Him to love you, because He already does. Yeah. Do you see this? Yeah. We don't serve and love and follow Him to make Him love us. We do it because... <laughs> He loves us. And we see again, I really am more terrible than I ever thought. Yeah. He really does love me more than I ever could have imagined. So, if the love of God doesn't move you, it's probably we don't have a really sober view of ourselves, if I'm honest. Yeah. So now, 
for the Christian. Your identity is hidden in Christ, the most secure and unchangeable being in all of the universe. Now you can pursue a career and not get it, and your life isn't over. It is still full of life and worth and purpose and vision and dream and joy. Failure or success. When you succeed at something, you can say, if I had failed, I would still be loved just as much as I am right now that I succeeded. And when you fail at anything, career, mentally, spiritually, morally, whatever, if or when that happens, you can say, I am just as loved right now as if I had never stopped succeeding. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So as I close, Tim Keller says, the gospel offers us the most invincible, confident assurance of our own worth, and yet at the same time, it requires humble service and the loss of our autonomous independence. So where is your worth? Jesus has freed us for freedom. Have you given your freedom away? Have you put yourself under the obligation of someone else's thoughts of you? Or of the success you have? Or the love of someone else? Someone that you care about? Have you put on a yoke of self-righteousness? If I don't do good, if I don't give off that I have it all together all the time, I'm nobody. I can't be followed. You see, Christ has freed you. Each one of you. Any of you thinking that. So be free. Live in the reality that right now, if you're living in current failure, you are just as loved as if you had succeeded. Or live in the reality that right now you may be succeeding and have great achievement, but you wouldn't be loved any less if you had failed miserably. You have been adopted and free. In adoption, the adopted one doesn't do any of the work. It's the one doing the adoption that seeks it out, pays the price, goes through the process and paperwork just to bring home someone who doesn't have a home. All you have to do is be. Does it make sense? Just, he wants to adopt. Be adopted. Be his son. Be his daughter. Does it make sense? It does mean, like any father, like any father, this is my home. This is the way my household lives. And I do it because he brought me into his home. Not so I can get into it. You see? In Christ you are adopted. So just be adopted. Gandalf said it to Theoden King in Lord of the Rings after he had been freed of this evil spirit inside of him. He said, breathe the free air again, my friend. Breathe in the air of adoption. I feel like too often, one good practice, and this is how I one good practice I did it the other day. I just was laying outside on the back of, this, on the back of my truck bed, and you just sit there, and you, you think and you meditate on that reality like right here, right now, Because of Jesus, I am a son or daughter of the living God. I don't need this terrible relationship. I don't need this good relationship. I don't need success in this thing. It doesn't hurt if I have failure in this thing. I am His. And that drives freedom. It drives wanting to obey. You see? It drives wanting to be like Him. I want to grow up to be like my Father. You see? If that's not you, and your life shows no evidence of that kind of freedom, then you are a free 
son or daughter of God. And your worth comes from either you fighting for something inwards or outwards. I would not wait another moment. As soon as you possibly could, I'll find you, your small group leader, and I both of you, you tell the Lord that. You tell him, I don't, I want to be free of that. Will, will you take me? Will you, will you give me a home? You've given all my other friends homes. They talk about your home. Will you, will you give me a home? You see? Jesus, we love you. We need you desperately. <clears throat> I pray that every person here who truly loves you, who truly longs in their heart of hearts to give all to you, God, when they leave, when they drive home, when they're in their room, wherever they're going to be tonight, will you help them to be still, Father? And when they are, will you show them, will you speak and reveal to them this reality of freedom in your kingdom, that they belong to you, the one most worthy of, being, of belonging to. Help each person here live in freedom that leads to obedience to you. God, we love you. Only you can speak to every person here. Holy Spirit, only you can be with each one of them when they leave. Will you help them to hear you? Draw their hearts to you. And when, they, when you reveal yourself to them, may they lay all at your feet because you're so worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.